Well, good morning, Bridge family. If you got your Bibles, head over to Matthew chapter 1. Um, that's going to be this morning. Right now, we are joining in with our Columbia campus. Honored to do that. And uh, I'm really excited because today we are starting our Christmas series that we're just calling Carols. And uh, let me explain what's going on in this series. Uh, what happens a lot of times with Christmas music is those are oftentimes the songs that we know the best but understand the least. Uh, and what happens a lot of times is you'll get into singing a Christmas song, and, uh, and what's happening is you're singing the gospel without even knowing it. And so what we'll do during the series is each week we'll take one Christmas carol, something that's super familiar that you've sung a million times, and we'll each week show you how the gospel is being sung and presented uh, in that particular carol. Now, um, in order to lead into the series, uh, let me do this. I need to vent about Christmas music real quick. Can I do that? Will you guys let me vent about Christmas music? Okay, uh, here's my deal about Christmas music. It's fine. I love it. But some of you started listening to this music three weeks before Halloween. And so that right now, by the time we get to this part in the year, I want to stick a toothpick under my big toenail and kick a wall. That's what's happening to me. So it's like, man, it's, I know that's a tough mental image. I get it. I, get, I almost didn't put that in. Um, and, and what I'm figuring out is that uh, there are, it, there's literally no rules about who gets to make a Christmas album and who doesn't, okay? Um, I'll give you a couple examples of this. We need some arbiter about who is allowed to record a Christmas album and who can't. Um, if you know, that's right, I like you. I like you, that's right. Okay, now watch this. Uh, if you are familiar with this album, you are old enough for me and you to be friends, okay? Does anybody remember this? This guy? Wham! Last Christmas. Anybody remember that? <laughs> this Christmas, I gave you my... Never should have happened. That never should have happened. Bad album. I'll give you another one. This is a terrible album. David Hasselhoff, The Night Before Christmas. If you ever wanted a Baywatch star to serenade you to sleep on December 24th. This is, by the way, I checked this week. This is still available on iTunes, 1099. You can get it right after this service. And then uh, this is my favorite one I ran across this week. Here you go. Duck Dynasty, Duck the Halls. In case you needed Willie Robertson, you know. By the way, one of the songs on this album is We Wish You a Hairy Christmas. That's an actual thing. And so this is here. Now, I want to do one last one. And by the way, uh, this is the one that is hardest for me. So if you're, if you're in the same camp as me, when you hear what you're about to hear, I want you to respond audibly like you want to respond every time you hear this song. Do it right now. Can you play it? That's it. Oh, Oh, it's the worst. That's it. That's enough. I can't handle any more. That's right. Just the worst. Um, I've got a friend in Nashville who, uh, th- about this song, uh, he wrote a blog post just called Three Ways to Survive the Song Christmas Shoes. So let me help you navigate through this Christmas season. He said, number one, if it comes on the radio while you're driving in a car, don't forget to tuck your shoulder when you open the door to roll out on the street. What about your car, you say? You can always buy a new one, but you can't unhear that song. Totally true, okay? Number two, don't negotiate with it. Much like fear, the Christmas shoes song cannot be beat with logic or rational thinking. Don't waste time with questions like, where's this kid's dad? Does he have a dad? Why shoes? Why not a Christmas dress? Why not a delicious bowl of queso? Has an eight-year-old ever successfully purchased women's shoes in the history of mankind? Okay, there you go. And then number three, stop being friends with people who say it's not a bad song. They're wrong. Those people have terrible judgment and probably prefer unfrosted Pop-Tarts as well. Just stop doing life with them. Can I get an amen at all our campuses? An amen. That's right. We can do that. Well, the song that we're uh, doing today, it's the song that we sang in services at both our campuses. It's a song, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. 
Uh, this is a very powerful song. Let me explain a little bit about the history of the song. It's the oldest Christmas carol you've probably ever sung. Uh, this song was written between the 8th and the 12th century, hundreds of years ago. Uh, and it started with a, a group of churches. What they would do is they, were, they would sing or chant phrases that started with the letter O. And then they would read a psalm, and they were called the O Antiphons. Uh, and they would sing these things, and eventually what they did is it birthed this song, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. Now, the entire sermon, the entire message today is centered around this one word, the word Emmanuel, which means, well, I'm going to show you what it means here in a second, okay? So if you've got your Bibles, pick up with me in Matthew 1, start with me in verse 20, okay? Matthew 1, 20, here we go. It says, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David. Now watch this, do not fear. Now bookmark that in your head, because that is connected to the title of Jesus we get in this passage. It says, do not fear to take Mary as your wife. For that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name, watch this, Emmanuel, which means God with us. Now let me tell you why that would have been such a big deal. When they heard this angel say, God with us, That was the thing that made the shepherds stand in awe. It was the thing that made Mary sing a song of worship. It was the thing that made kings come from other nations for God to be with us. And here's why that was such a big deal. Because for all of the Old Testament, God could never be with us. Um, Whenever God's people built a tabernacle in the Old Testament, do you remember when they built the tabernacle, they had to weave a curtain that separated God's people from God's presence that was as thick as your hand. When Moses asked God, show me your glory, will you just be with me for a second? God said, I wish I could, I can't. And he hid Moses in the cleft of the rock and he passed by as Moses was covered. When, uh, when a, a priest named Uzzah was helping to transfer the Ark of the Covenant where God's presence dwelt into the promised land, they were crossing the Jordan River and the priest began to stumble and the Ark began to fall. Uzzah just put up his hand in 1 Kings chapter 6 to touch the ark for one second. Uzzah touched the presence of God and he was struck dead. And so this is the thing that when they heard it, they thought, God with us? How could that possibly be? And that was a thing that moved their hearts at the very first Christmas. What I want to do today is I want to show you two things. I want to show you the doctrine and then I want to show you the devotion, okay? Doctrine, devotion. So let me start with doctrine really quick and just let's get some things straight, especially if you're a new or newer Christian. What does it mean for us to say that in the person of Jesus, God is with us, okay? Well, here's what we do. Uh, we in Christianity, we use a theological term to refer to this. Here's the word we use. We say that, that Jesus was God incarnate, Now now think about this. Think about that word. What does incarnate mean? Incarnate. That middle word, carn, it comes from the Latin word carne, which means flesh. Uh, To give you an example of this in modern day English, when you go to your favorite Mexican restaurant, if you're anything like me, you order your favorite thing. Uh, I'll go and what I want to order is chili con carne. That's what I want to order anytime I go. Chili con carne. Now, you'll never order it again after I explain this to you because it's so disgusting. What that means is chili with flesh. Merry Christmas, right? That's, that's what you're eating every time you go. Now, honestly, what theologians have said before, what Jesus, Jesus was in, in a very real sense, he was God con carne. 
Jesus was God in the flesh. Simultaneously, watch this, this is important, 100% man and 100% God. Jesus did not become God. Jesus was born as God. Now watch this. Why did God become a man in the person of Jesus? Well, theologians say he did that for three, three reasons. Now watch this. They all start with R because I'm a wonderful preacher and work very hard on this. He did this, three reasons, to relate, reveal, and redeem. Relate, reveal, and redeem. Now let me cover these really quick because all of them are doctrine, okay? Relate. The book of Hebrews says this, and this is very comforting to us at Christmas. It says, For we do not have a great high priest who is unable to sympathize with us in our weaknesses, but one who is tempted like us in every way. That's very comforting. Um, Here's what I figured out about Christmas. I I say that Christmas is like a great magnifier. If life is really good, Christmas makes life feel really, really good. But for some of you, life is not really good. Life is really bad, and Christmas tends to make life feel really, really bad. That's what it tends to do. Now watch this. The great comfort we have in the incarnation of Jesus is that you can know, no matter how hard life is, God is with you and he understands. Do you guys understand? If you look at the life of Jesus, in order for Jesus to become like us in every way, he had to suffer like us in every way. If you look at the life of Jesus, he has experienced every pain that you'll experience at any Christmas. Jesus stood at his best friend Lazarus' grave. Jesus died single. He watched everybody around him get married and have kids. You realize some of you prayed really hard at some point in your life and God did not answer your prayer and you ask God, why? Why didn't you do this? Do you guys realize that Jesus had a prayer turned down too when he went to the Garden of Gethsemane? He prayed, Father, if it's possible, take this cup and God turned down the prayer of Jesus. At the cross, Jesus understood what it was like to have his father abandon him. Jesus was poor. He had no house. The son of man had no place to lay his head. Jesus was betrayed at the end of his life by every single one of his friends. At the cross, Jesus experienced the greatest physical pain anyone has ever experienced. Some of you have spent your entire life feeling rejected like an outsider you've never fit in. Jesus was an outsider, hated and rejected by people everywhere. Yes, no, the Bible says that the church is the, it says, the bride of Christ. Do you know what that means? It means that Jesus knows what it's like to have an unfaithful spouse. The Bible says that Christians are God's children. Jesus knows what it's like to have a child that's running away from God and destroying their life by running from him. So what what we're seeing here is God came to earth in the flesh so that you and me could not just know him at a distance, we could know him personally. He could relate to us. One Bible scholar says it like this. This is so good. He says the entire reason God created us was to have a relationship with us. So think about this. When God put Adam and Eve in the garden, they could say, God walks with us. Uh, When God led Israel out of Egypt, remember, he did so with a pillar of fire and smoke so the Israelites could say, God is before us and God is behind us. When God had them build a tabernacle, they could say, God is in the midst of us. But when Jesus was born, the angel declares, Emmanuel, now God is with us. And now that he sent his spirit to us, we can now say, God is in us. You see, so this is what happens, is that what God has done is he came as a man to relate to you. Okay, now I'll give you another one. He didn't just come to relate, he came to reveal. Um, Let me explain something to you, it may may have been confusing. Uh, For a lot of people, when they read the Ten Commandments for the first time, they'll read the first and second commandment and think, huh, that's redundant. The first commandment is, you shall have no other gods before me. That's a prohibition of idolatry. 
But then you read the second commandment, and it says, you shall not make for yourself a graven image, okay? Now, some people read that and go, huh, it seems like another prohibition of idolatry. It's not. What Bible scholars say the second commandment is doing is it's not saying don't worship other gods. The second commandment was saying don't make an image of the one true God. Now, let me ask you this question. Why did God command thousands of years ago not to ever make an image of the one true God? Why did he do that? Do you know what God was doing? He was saying, I don't want you to make an image because someday I'm going to send one. I will send you a perfect representation of my character, the exact imprint of my nature, the image of the invisible God. And when Jesus came on earth in the flesh, Now, we don't have to wonder what God is like. We know exactly what God is like because he came to earth as a man and walked around and showed us. So that right now, watch this. If you are wondering what does God's mercy look like, you simply have to watch Jesus wrap his arms around a woman caught in adultery. If you want to wonder what the wisdom of God is like, just watch Jesus confound the smartest people of his day with a single question. If you want to know what the holiness of God is like, watch Jesus transfigured and become like lightning from heaven on the Mount of Transfiguration. If you want to know what the love of God is like, watch Jesus stretch out his arms on a cross and die for your sins. And if you want to know what the power of God is like, watch the stone be rolled away from the tomb and nothing be in there because he's conquered death itself. We can always know what God is like. Listen, here's all you got to do. You want to know what God is like? Look at Jesus. He came to reveal the character and nature of God. Now watch this. Number three, he came to redeem. If I get emotional during this part of the sermon, here's why. It's because my daughter's being baptized today. Come on, somebody. That's what's happening. Okay. The primary reason, the primary reason that God became a man was so that he could die for you. You see, here's what you got to understand. What God is, God is simultaneously holy, and that means he has to punish sin, and loving, which means he doesn't want to punish sinners. Now, here's my theological question for you. How could God simultaneously be holy and loving? Or to put it in the words of the Apostle Paul, how could God be both just and punish sin and a justifier of the ungodly and love sinners? Well, here's how. In order for God to punish sin without punishing sinners, He had to send someone, watch this, not just to die for you, but to die instead of you. And if he wanted somebody to die in the place of man, he had to become a man. The early church father, a a guy named Athanasius, a great theologian, he put it very succinctly. He said, in the incarnation of Jesus, God became what we are that we might become what he is. Let me explain to you what the good news of Christmas is. You may have missed this. Watch this. Here's the difference between Christianity and every other religion, worldview, and philosophy that has ever existed. In every other religion, worldview, and philosophy, it's always you have to work your way up to God. That's always how it works. In Islam, it's the five pillars. If you're just obedient enough to the five pillars, then you work your way up to God. In Buddhism, it's the eightfold path. If you adhere religiously enough to the Eightfold Path, then you work your way up to achieve nirvana. In Hinduism, it's the the concept of karma. If I do good, I get good. If I do bad, I I get bad. If you sort of obey by the rules of karma enough, you work your way up to incarnation and sort of become one with the universe. Uh, Some of you, it's uh, it's not Buddhism, it's not Hinduism, it's not Islam. 
For some of you, it's a very legalistic form of Christianity you grew up in. You grew up being taught, whether implicitly or explicitly, that your level of obedience to God determined God's level of love for you. And do you know what you were being taught? That you've got to work your way up to God. But watch this. In the story of Christmas, we get this good news. That the great news of the gospel is not we have to work our way up. It's that God came down. God has come down to us in the person of Jesus. And so that now there's nothing left for you to do. God has come down and accomplished all of that on your behalf. One of the most shocking and clearest statements of this in the Bible happens in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. And it's the kind of verse that when you read, it doesn't shock us like it should. So let me read it to you and let me shock you like it should. Paul says, he says this, he says, God made him, he became, God made him who knew no sin to become sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Now, did you hear what that passage said? That said that at the cross, Jesus was not simply dying for our sin, although he was doing that. Jesus at the cross was becoming all of the sin that you would ever commit so that in him you could become the righteousness of God. Can I shock you with that? Let me shock you with that. What that means is that at the cross, Jesus was being treated as, God was loading onto Jesus. Jesus was becoming at the cross Jesus became a pornography addict. At the cross, Jesus became a cheating spouse. He became a bitter, unforgiving wife. Jesus became a person whose life says to God, I don't want you, I just want your stuff, I'm a worldly person. At the cross, Jesus became a three-time divorcee who has now awoken to uh, the reality and they realize it was all their fault. At the cross, Jesus became an emotionally absent father. He became an angry, harsh mother. At the cross, Jesus became an addict so that in him you might become the righteousness of God. He became what we are so that we might become as he is. Is that not good news? That has happened to us. So Jesus came to reveal, redeem, and relate. Now watch this. What does that mean? That's got massive implications for how we live our life. What does it mean for me that now God is with us. Okay, let, let me give you a visual. Uh, this, is, um, this is a very near and dear uh, object in our house. This is my uh, youngest daughter, Felicity's. This is called Boppy. Um, this is Felicity's comfort item so that uh, Felicity, when, when she was born, we brought her home for the first time and, and adopted her. We placed this little thing in her arms from the minute that we got her and she attached to this. Uh, now, Felicity is a very, uh, she had, <clears throat> our children are different. Eliana's our daredevil. Felicity is scared of literally everything. There are foods that Felicity asked not to be on the table because she's scared of how they look. That's a true story. Uh, Felicity, uh, there are episodes of Paw Patrol that Felicity has me change the channel because she's scared. It's just Felicity. Now, what, what changes everything for Felicity is if she can get her boppy in her arms. It's her comfort item. In Felicity's mind, if I've got Boppy, everything changes and everything's safe. Uh, so much so that the uh, most common words we ever hear from, from Felicity, uh, they're not mommy or daddy or I love you or even I'm hungry. The most common words we ever hear from Felicity are, where's Boppy? That's the most common, where's Boppy? If she doesn't see Boppy, she freaks out. So we work very, very hard 
to keep Boppy with us wherever we go. Because if she's got Boppy, everything changes. Now watch this. <clears throat> Sometimes we forget, but, but here's what Felicity doesn't know. You guys want to know what Felicity doesn't know? She, now don't tell her, you'll ruin this for us. What Felicity doesn't know, there's two Boppies. <laughs> she, she doesn't know that. There's two Boppies. <laughs> so one of them stays in the van and one of them stays at home. So that if we forget Boppy, we've got the backup Boppy. We can just slip it right in and everything's fine. Are we not geniuses? That's, that's good parenting right there, right? That's good parenting. Now watch this. Here, here's what happens. As in Felicity's mind, if I've got Boppy, everything changes. I'm safe. Nothing bad can happen to me as long as I've got Boppy. Now, now listen, do you, when you realize that the almighty God of the universe is with you, that changes everything. It changes everything about your present. It changes everything about your future. You see, when you feel lost, understand that God is with you as your guide. When you feel alone, God is with you as your friend. When you are hurting, God is with you as your comforter. When you are sick, God is with you as your healer. When, God, when you are weak, God is with you as your strength. When you are in your sin, God is with you as your savior. I'm preaching 100% better than you're responding right now. He's, God is with you. He is with you. Now watch this. What you're going to notice is your entire life, what will keep you from believing that God is with you is your circumstances. <laughs> Right? Some of you, you're looking around at your life right now, and you're going, man, if I look around at my life, it sure doesn't seem like God is with me. And here's the question you're asking. You're asking the question, where is God? Now, can I, let me say something that I've learned from 20 years of walking with Jesus, and that any, uh, any aged saint will be able to tell you. Can I explain something to you if you're a young Christian? It is far easier to see God in the rearview mirror than through the windshield. It's real, it's far easier to look back and see, oh, God was with me, than it is to look forward and see, oh, God's going to be with me. That's far easier. So, so let me give you an example of this. For some of you, God is with you right now, like he was with Joseph in the Old Testament. Do you guys know the story of Joseph? Joseph was, he was a little boy with big dreams, and Joseph had a vision in his heart that he would become a leader and uh, just like older siblings usually don't, don't uh, they didn't like the fact that Joseph had a vision to become a leader. So what they did is they beat him and they threw him in a pit and they were going to leave him to die. And then one of the brothers said, wait, Joseph's been very nice to us. Let's just sell him into slavery. We'll be nice to him. So, so that's what they did. They sold Joseph into slavery. He gets sold into slavery. Joseph's in Egypt there. Joseph eventually gets falsely accused. He's thrown in prison. A death sentence is pronounced over Joseph. And all that time, do you know what Joseph was probably asking? He was asking the question, man, where is God? Where's God right now? But listen, we don't have to wonder where God was in Joseph's story because Genesis 39, 21 tells us. Here's what it says. It says, but the Lord was with Joseph. The entire time, the Lord was with Joseph. Because see, do you guys remember how Joseph's story ends? Joseph goes from the pit to the prison and then he has a dream that God gives him and somebody interprets that dream. He interprets that dream for the king and he goes from the prison to the palace and God uses Joseph to save the entire nation of Israel. And it's eventually from Joseph's line comes the Messiah of the world, Jesus Christ. So watch this, because God was with Joseph, he went from the pit to the prison to the palace. And some of you are in that spot right now where you're in the pit 
or you're in the prison and you don't understand, God is with you. And he is in the business of taking people from the pit to the palace to accomplish his purpose. He's with you right now, just as he was with Joseph, okay? So what you got to understand is that it's so much easier to see God in the rearview mirror, how he was working, than it is to see him in the windshield, how he, how he will work. I get very emotional. That will probably happen right now in this spot in the sermon. When I look back at my life and I see all the ways that God was with me. Uh, sometimes it was in, in little ways. You know, when, when uh, I was in high school and college and lots of girls broke up with me. I know that is so hard to imagine. But lots and lots and lots of girls broke up with me. And I remember being in my bedroom and in my dorm room and I'm crying and thinking it was the end of the world and literally asking, you know, God, where are you? And then no offense to anyone, but 10 years later, I'd see some of those exact same girls and I'd think, you were with me. Right? That's it. There are times I look back and I go, man, God, you were with me. God was with us when Jana and I were wrestling with infertility and we were praying and praying and praying for God to give us a child. And then God birthed in us this desire to adopt now. And we, he was with us when somebody laid our firstborn daughter, Eliana, into our hands. And the word Eliana means God has answered. God was with us. God was with us at times in our church's life. Many years ago, oh, this is where I'll lose it. Okay, you guys got to help me get, if I lose it, you just start clapping and it'll confuse me and I'll start again. God, thank you, thank you. God was with us when my dad had been pastoring this church for three years and God called him back into another ministry. And we thought, back then there were 100 people gathering in Chapman's Retreat Elementary and we thought that would be it. Man, the church probably won't make it, but God was with us and we are where we are today, seeing God move. See, God was with us. God was with us when, (laughs) I told you, start clapping again if I lose it, just help me out. There it is, you guys gotta help me out. God was with us when Jan and I were first married (laughs) and we had more love than money, you know, and a a, a really exciting date night was what was us. This was literally a date night expenditure, being able to supersize a value meal. That was the date night splurge. And God was with us then. And we prayed and we asked him to provide for us. And we chose to tithe when it didn't make any sense. And all of a sudden, there were deacons in the church giving us $100 handshakes. We had this old $800 car. We love that car so much. We prayed over that car. We anointed it with oil <clears throat> about a quart a week. <laughs> you know, We did all that. And we saw God, that car just kept running and running and running. The previous owner of our condo had actually overpaid the property taxes on the condo. The government couldn't find them. They actually ended up giving us the money that somebody else paid in taxes. God was with us. God was with us when Jan and I, seven years ago, started praying for the salvation of our children. And Eliana will be baptized today. God was with us. That's right. God was with us when I didn't tell, I didn't tell anybody about this. The last few months have been really interesting. God was with us when about two months ago, a doctor told my dad he thought he had aggressive, inoperable stage four cancer. And we gathered in our house and we prayed. And the next doctor came and did all his scans and said, man, you're fine. And my dad's fine today. God was with us. And listen, all those are wonderful stories about God will be with us. But but I want you to remember this too. That someday I'll be on my deathbed. And people will be around me praying for my healing. And God will not choose to heal me someday. And I'll die and I'll go to heaven. And God will be with me. You see, God is with us. 
And what Satan meant for evil, God meant for good. And here's what you're going to find your entire life. What you will always find is that forgetfulness is the greatest enemy of faith. It's when we forget what God did that we stop believing what God will do. And if you will just look in the rearview mirror and see all the ways that God was with you, then you'll look forward and you'll be able to have confidence that God will be with me. I just want you to think about, think about this story that we're reading today in Matthew chapter 1. And think about Mary. I want you to imagine this. So somebody comes to Mary, angel comes to Mary and tells her, Mary, God will be with you. Now think about this. If Mary had had to envision everything that would happen to her and to her family without the confidence that God would be with her, she would never have made it. But because Mary had this promise, Mary, God will be with you. I want you to think about this. What Mary was able to say is she was able to go, man, God is going to be with me when I tell the person that I'm engaged to, Joseph, that I've conceived by the Holy Spirit. God, that's scary, but God's going to be with me. And God's going to be with me whenever I give birth in a manger surrounded by animals, and God's going to be with me. And then God's going to be with me when I lose my son and we find him again at the temple and we figure out he was just asking hard theological questions. And God's going to be with me when we flee to Egypt because people are trying to kill my kids. He's going to be with me. And God will be with me when my son changes water into wine at a wedding and he reveals his glory for the first time. God will be with me. And then she was able to say, man, God will be with me when my son would be falsely accused and nailed to a cross, brutally beaten by the sinners for whom he was dying, and I have to watch, God will be with me. And then she would know, and then God will be with me when on the first night that Jesus is in the tomb, I'm waiting and I'm watching and I'm wondering if anything is going to happen. And God will be with me on night two when I'm waiting and watching and praying and I'm not sure anything's going to happen. And then God will be with me when on the third day I go to that tomb and the stone's been rolled away and he is not there because he is risen, because he is Emmanuel, God with us. God will be with me. And if you understand that, you can face anything in life that you ever come upon. Anything you ever face, you can face it with the confidence knowing God is with me. Uh, The Apostle Paul, he says it like this. He says, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Give me this. I want you here, Columbia campus, I want you to shout the answer to each one. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble? No. Shall hardship? No. Shall persecution? No. Famine? No. Nakedness? I don't know what nakedness is doing in that passage. I have never wondered if nakedness separated me from the love of God. Shall danger? Shall sword? No. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, angels nor demons, present, future, any powers, neither height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. Guys, God is from everlasting to everlasting. He is the alpha. He is the omega. He will never leave you. He will never forsake you. And in him, there is no shadow due to change. God is with us, and he's with you right now. And now the only question is, are you with him? That's the only question. Are you with him?
And right now I want to pray that in your hearts, in your heart of hearts, that you would seek him and you would find him as you seek him with all your heart. And so would you just let me pray for you right now? Here, Columbia campus, bow your heads, close your eyes, and Father, thank you so much for being a God who is with us. Emmanuel is your name. Father, you cannot abandon us because it's not what you do, it's who you are. You are the God who is with us. And so, Father, I pray that you would pour out your spirit on this church and these people, that an overwhelming sense of your presence would give us a strength we don't believe we have, a comfort that is not ours, a confidence that we do not possess in ourselves, but that we would locate all of those things in the risen Jesus Christ who is with us. Father, we love you. We dedicate ourselves to you anew this Christmas. We pray that in the name of your son who came to become what we are so that we might become what you are. Emmanuel, God with us, we love you. Amen and amen, amen.